Hello, and welcome to The Solve Network. I'm Shane Borza, host of the podcast. Along with my co-founder, Benjamin Goss, we'd like to welcome you. Our mission is to provide solutions and create a network of experts for you to learn from. We hope this episode and expert helps you to learn, grow, and move forward. And now, on with the show. Hey, my name is James. I'm a lawyer who's always been interested in optimal human performance, and that's how I found Shane. If you're looking to upgrade your mental and physical fitness, then the Ultimate Performance Course is for you. It's the key to performing better at work, at home, and in all of life's challenges. I've also found it to be a great community of like-minded and supportive professionals. As Shane says, together, everyone accomplishes more. Want to have your ultimate performance or find out more about how to optimize your mind and body fitness? Contact me at shaneborza.com and see if the DIY or the group program would be best for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Solve Network. My name is Shane Borza, and along with my co-founder and partner, Benjamin Goss, we are thrilled to have you here with us again. Tonight, we're excited to have John Stange with us, who is multifaceted. I'm really excited to talk to him. He's the lead pastor of the Core Creek Community Church in Pennsylvania. He's also an adjunct professor at Cairn University, and he teaches a number of different things, including counseling, theology, and church uh, planning. He is an author and speaker, and tonight he's going to be talking about some of the lessons that are in his book. He has a number of podcasts out as well, and I'm going to be talking to him a little bit after his presentation, so please stick around so you can hear more information on all of the different things that he does. Without any further ado, I'd like to hand it off to John, and thank you again so much for being here tonight. Thanks, Shane. It's great to be with you. So I'd love to have you start your presentation. I know you have some slides. So for those of you listening to the podcast, you won't be able to see them, but you can go to our YouTube channel and you'll be able to watch the presentation. All right. Well, thank you for having me with you. Again, my name is John Stonge. And recently I wrote the book, Dwell on These Things. And the book, Dwell on These Things, is a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. And I'm going to share in just a moment why I wrote the book and what motivated me to put this content down and a little bit about my journey in putting this together. But it's this is a concept that that I think is is highly beneficial to think about because there's a message going through each of our minds and each of our hearts. And, uh, and throughout the course of this book, we talk a lot about that. And I'll mention this at the end as well, but if you want to check out a, uh, a, uh, just a, a sample of the book, if you'd like to actually download and read the first three chapters for free, you can stop by my website, which is desirejesus.com. And if you go to desirejesus.com slash dwell on these things, you'll be able to download and read the first three chapters for free. So what motivated me to write on this topic? Well, for the past 25 years, I've been serving in pastoral ministry, and 23 of those years, I've been full-time serving in this role. And one of the interesting things uh, about the role of serving in a pastor is each week I'm putting I'm putting together messages, and, and I'm speaking to people, and and I'm no, I notice that that frequently the things that I'm sharing about 
are things that seem to encourage people. I'm certainly trying to encourage people. I'm trying to put messages together that would encourage people in their faith and in their walk with Christ. But I notice that that sometimes, and it's really more than sometimes, it's it's somewhat frequent, the message that we'll sit down and hear from a sermon doesn't always become the message that we start preaching to our own hearts. And one of the things that I noticed even about my own traits or my own uh, just kind of quirks was uh, frequently when I would preach a message and I would try to spend all this time encouraging people and try to try to help people in their walk with the Lord, I would find myself after preaching that message, after trying to encourage people's hearts, I would find a way to kind of pick on myself about either my delivery of that message or maybe it didn't come together quite like I thought it would. And I started noticing that frequently the things that I was preaching to my own heart don't didn't always line up with the things that I was trying to encourage other people with. And so I had this idea that it might be beneficial to sit down and actually write about this topic and put something together in a practical way that would be hopefully inspirational and hopefully informative that would help people to begin talking to themselves the way God actually talks to us. Because we receive messages from countless sources every day. So think about all the different sources that you're receiving information from or messages from. You're hearing from teachers, you're hearing from pastors, you're hearing from family members and friends, you're hearing from the internet. You know, we live in the, this information age where we're hearing all these things, TV, so on, all of these sources of information giving us different messages and different ideas and and different things that that end up in our mind and start playing on repeat but nobody's going to have more opportunity to preach to your to your ears and to your heart than you will and so the messages that we preach to our own hearts are very critical because frequently we'll hear good information but we won't always couple that with speaking a message to our own heart that actually lines up with the good with the good information that we've been receiving. So I think many of us have a, a habit of dwelling on negative or untrue things and then letting those messages shape our perspective. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is because so many relationships that we deal with in this world are very conditional in nature. There are many people in my life, and I would assume many people in your life, that like me as long as I do something for them or give something to them. And as long as they can get something from me that they feel might be valuable, they treat me with love or they treat me with concern. But as soon as that stops, it's almost like I'm cast aside. And so frequently throughout life, I think because so many of us deal with that, I think it can become very easy for us to think that our sense of value and our sense of worth really comes down to what we can provide to other people. And if we're somehow meeting their expectations, then we think, okay, then I'm loved. But if I don't meet those expectations, then I'm not loved or I'm not respected. And so many of us have a habit of dwelling on very negative things because there's just been this this idea of conditional love or conditional acceptance that's been preached to us through our experiences and through our interactions with other people. And we've experienced that all throughout the course of our lives. And and frequently that becomes the type of thing that we start preaching to ourselves. And it's very unhealthy. 
Now, we live in a day and age that we have where we have access to more information than any era that has come before us. We have greater access to God's word than any previous generation. And uh, as a as a pastor, I, I spent a lot of time studying scripture. I have a lot of, of opportunities to communicate scripture. Um, I, I'm amazed at just how easy it is to access what scripture happens to say. But I think we take that for granted. I think because information is so easy to come by, we don't value it the same way. Uh, it's kind of like when uh, when you're just going through life and the power is on in your home, you don't think a whole lot about the fact that you have electricity. You're just used to having it. But when a storm comes and it takes the electricity away, then you realize, oh, wow, I, I miss electricity. I can't wait till it comes back. I feel like I'm frozen until I get it. And I, I think that's frequently how things operate when it comes to information or when it comes to the Word of God in particular. We're so used to having it that we don't think much about the fact that we have just great and abundant access to it. And as a result, we just kind of take it for granted. I guess if it was, if it went away, if it was something that was taken away from us, maybe we would learn to value it more. But because we have access to it, we don't always value it the way we ought to value it. And the danger of that is that sometimes we can minimize what it's actually saying and find ourselves in a spot where we're kind of just ignoring the very things that God's trying to communicate to us. Now, my book is called Dwell on These Things. And if you're familiar with scripture and if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, that's actually a, a, a reference that comes from Philippians chapter four, verse eight. And I'm just going to read that verse in case anyone that might be listening isn't familiar with it. But in that verse, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So I want you to just think for a second, what does it actually look like to dwell on what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is lovely? Earlier tonight, I had the opportunity to go out to a restaurant with my oldest son. And uh, he messaged me just a few hours ago and he said, hey, dad, any chance you, you feel like going out to eat? He's in college. He, he goes to uh, a college that's not far from my house. And I said, yeah, I'd love to get together and eat. And I said, where do you, you want to go? And he said, hold on, look, let me just think about it for a minute. And then he messaged me back and he said, hey, there's a new burger place. It's not too far away. Let's go try that. And so we tried it. And neither of us had been there before. And so the very first thing we did was we sat down and we looked at the menu and we wanted to see, okay, well, what kind of burgers do they have? And there wasn't anything all that abnormal. It was all just kind of, you know, the standard type of burger that you would expect. But as you look at that, you kind of think, all right, these are the options. This is the diet. This is, this is the menu that's being offered to us here at this restaurant. And when we think of our, our thinking, when we think about what, what goes into our mind or what we dwell on or what it actually looks like to dwell on what is true and what is honorable and what is just and what is lovely, we need to think of that like a diet. We need to think about the things that we're feeding our mind and the things that we're feeding our hearts and what it actually looks like to stay focused on those things. Frequently, our minds, stand, they, they tend to stay stuck in just kind of 
whatever thought is consuming us at any given time. And if we're frequently feeding our mind a diet of things that produce anxiety or a diet of things that, that produce stress or a diet of things that are unhelpful, we're going to see that coming out in our lives in one way or another. But if we're feeding our hearts, if we're feeding our minds a diet of things that are true and honorable and just and lovely, that's ultimately going to impact what comes out of our lives, just like just like if we're feeding our minds anxious thoughts or we're feeding our minds, uh, you know, things that tend to stress our, ourselves out. I was speaking to somebody recently who was really wrestling with a lot of anxiety. And in the midst of her anxiety, I, I just asked her, I said, okay, what sort of things are you thinking about? And what sort of things are you feeding your mind? What does your mental diet look like? And she told me that the primary thing that she was feeding to her mind and to her heart happened to be news stories and just a variety of things that, that were going on in the news, world events, national events. And then she started listing all the different things that, that were part of, um, of that, that list of things that, that she was really feeding her mind. And I said, okay, do you, do you understand that, that basically you're feeding yourself a steady diet of things that produce anxiety? You're producing a, you're basically putting trauma in front of your face day in and day out, and it's coming out in your life in unhealthy ways. And so for us, when we're thinking about what it actually looks like to dwell on what is true and what's honorable and what's just and what's lovely, just like it speaks about in Philippians chapter four, verse eight, I think a big part of that starts with the diet that we put in front of ourselves. What are we actually consuming? What are we actually feeding our mind? Because the things that we feed our mind are the things that our mind is going to ultimately begin to focus on. And we're going to think about these things more and more and more. And uh, we could feed our mind healthy things and true things and honorable things and lovely things, or we could feed our minds things that are unhealthy and unwise. And what ends up happening, if we, if we start feeding our minds things that are unhealthy and unwise and untrue and dishonorable, what ends up happening is we get to a spot where the very things that God wants us to hear and the very things that, that God wants us to understand, we start drowning that voice out and we stop dwelling on the things that, that are ultimately honorable and helpful. And we begin consuming things that are unhealthy and not helpful at all. And so again, in the book, we talk about this idea of what, what would it look like to spend an entire month, 31 days talking to ourselves in a different way, talking to ourselves like God talks to us in scripture. Now, there's a word in scripture that I think a lot of people look at and they'll say, okay, I, I realize that as a preacher, you're, you're encouraging us to think about what it says in the Bible, but there's a word there that, that tends to scare people quite frequently. And that word is repent. So when people see the word repent, typically they picture some guy that, that's a little bit fanatical standing on the side of a street corner with a sign and he's holding it up and he's, he's yelling at people and he's telling people that, that they need to repent. And when you look at that word in scripture, it talks about it from a perspective where, where it illustrates to us that it's actually a privilege to repent. But for many people, repentance is a scary word, so they don't understand what it's actually talking about. And so one of the things we talk about in the book is how, how can biblical repentance actually help us with our internal struggles? And what repentance is in regard to this particular concept, 
it, it, it takes place when we say, all right, I'm going to identify my false beliefs and I'm going to turn from things that are untrue and unhealthy, and I'm going to turn toward what is true. So I'm going to repent of my false beliefs, and I'm going to embrace beliefs that are ultimately edifying. And biblical repentance, this idea of turning away from something unhealthy and unwise towards something that is healthy and of God and wise and beneficial, it helps us with our internal struggles. And and I think part of it is we find ourselves in a spot where we have to acknowledge that the things that are unhealthy are things that we've been welcoming into our life for far too long, that we're treating these things like a friend. And we're treating these things like they belong in our life. And biblical repentance helps us with the internal struggles that we often face because it shows us, no, identify that as unhealthy and turn from it and then turn toward what is true. Now, another thing that we talk about in the book that I think is uh, hopefully helpful for those that are taking the time to really internalize this and wrestle with this is the fact that the gospel is actually the solution to our negative self-talk. And I want to illustrate this with with something that just happened recently. I was asked by a friend to meet with somebody who really was looking for kind of emergency counsel. She was really discouraged. She was really depressed. She was having some issues with both her husband and her son. And she asked if she could meet for counseling. And I agreed to it. And so I sat down with this woman and I asked her to just start telling me some of the things that, that she was wrestling with. And as she was going through her story, she said, all right, basically, I've spent my life messing up my son's life. And I said, now, why do you feel you've messed up your son's life? And she said, well, because my son tells me this. And I said, all right, well, well what does he tell you? Now, her son is an adult, and her son will frequently tell her that she has been emotionally unavailable to him. And I said, all right, well, do you think that that's true? And she said, I, I suppose that could be true. I, I don't know. I've tried to be helpful to him. And I said, okay. And I said, when you look at your life, what do you, what do you think? What's your assessment of your life? And she's, she says that her life has been basically a hopeless life and that she feels like a complete failure. And I asked her, I said, where is this being reinforced from? And, and again, she said, it's being reinforced from the conversations that I'm having with my son, but also from my husband. Now, what I ended up discovering is that both her husband and her son tend to be very critical people. And this woman tends to be somebody who is a much more passive in her mindset and much more passive in her demeanor. And I said, all right, you've spent a lot of time hearing how other people are blaming you for things going on in their life. But from what I can see, you're not the reason that they're dealing with what they're dealing with. They are adults and they can make their own decisions about what they choose to wrestle with and what they choose to welcome into their life. But you're adopting a mindset that basically takes their criticisms and you're saying that these are the things that are eternally true of you. And I wanted her to understand that none of us is perfect. Each of us wrestles with a variety of things. And what I wanted her to see is that the gospel was the solution to her negative self-talk. And so in her particular context, I asked her what her religious background was. And and the truth is, I, I don't know, those of you that are listening to this call, I don't know if you share my religious convictions or not. So I do appreciate your willingness to, to listen to some of the things that I'm sharing here, even if you come from a different perspective. But one of the things that is true of, of my belief 
and uh, and what Scripture teaches. It teaches this idea that there is good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that ultimately it's not a, a matter of us trying to be perfect in our own strength, and it's not a matter of us trying to get everything right in our own strength. It's a matter of us trusting in Jesus Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so again, I asked this woman recently as I was speaking with her, I said, what do you think will be the solution for you to overcome this negative self-talk and this self-criticism that you're putting yourself through? And she said, I just need to be stronger. I just need to, to, to be a stronger person. I need to make myself stronger. And, and I said to her, what, what if that's not something you're able to do? And I said, what if that's not the solution? And I said, and in fact, I think that's not the solution. And she said, I, I don't have any other idea. I don't have any other solution. I said, that's what you've been trying to do all along, isn't it? And she said, yeah. And I, I said, all right, well, it hasn't worked yet. Do you think it's all of a sudden going to start working someday for you to just make yourself stronger with strength that you don't even have? And she said, no, I guess that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I feel so weak right now. How am I supposed to make myself stronger in these areas? How am I supposed to overcome this negative self-talk? And I said, the gospel teaches that Jesus Christ came to this earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I said, I, what I encouraged her to do was to reach out to him and to ultimately ask him for his strength because she can already see that her strength wasn't sufficient. Her strength was limited. His strength is unlimited. And I said, that's the essence of faith in Christ, where you're saying, I have a need that I can't be the solution for. I need you to solve this for me. And when you look at what scripture says, it teaches us that that's exactly what Christ came to do. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to solve the problem that we could not solve. We were living in rebellion against our creator. We were living like enemies of God. And he came to reconcile us to God. And he did that by suffering on our behalf, taking our penalty upon himself, raising from death on the third day and offering us new life through faith in him. And I said to her, I don't know all the details of your religious faith, but I said, that's what I believe is true. And, and I said, one of the things that I'm learning in the process is that if I rely on the strength that Christ supplies, that changes the message that I'm speaking to my heart, because I don't have to look to myself to be perfect and to get everything right. I could look at my day and I could say, you know what, today I got certain things right and I got certain things wrong, but my sufficiency isn't found in myself. I have a savior who has rescued me and I can look to him as my source of hope. And so we talked about that. And so I believe the gospel is the solution to our negative self-talk. I think our negative self-talk often comes right back to us trying to do things for ourselves that we don't really have the power to do, or we don't have the power to do well. We might be able to get part of the way there. And then we think, okay, is this as far as I can go? And then we discover my strength is not sufficient. And in our weaknesses, the Lord supplies his strength. And I believe he, he and his gospel is the solution to our negative self-talk. And one of the things that, that scripture actually teaches us, and again, getting into the subtopic of, of dwell on these things, a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. Well, one of the things scripture actually tells us that, that God reveals to us, so he tells us this in his word, we are valued whether we get everything right or wrong. We are valued whether we work or whether we rest. We are valued whether whether we sit still or whether we're in motion. I think many people think that their value only comes 
from what they can produce. And as a result, they think that God will only value them if they're able to do something on his behalf or do this or do that. And we turn faith into something where we're saying, all right, I need to focus on the work of my hands to somehow be my sufficiency. I'm not going to be valued unless I accomplish something meaningful. I remember, and I tell this story in the book. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in my father's grocery store. My, my grandfather and my great-grandfather ran the grocery store first, and then my father took over the business. And I think it was assumed among my family that I would someday take over the business. I shouldn't even say I think. It, it, it definitely was assumed that I, at, at one point I would take that over. And I think they were very surprised when I went into pastoral ministry. But I remember when I was about 10 years old, my dad taught me how to face or condition the shelves. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it basically means you go through an aisle and you look at all the things that are in the aisle and you, you say, all right, I need to bring these things to the front edge of each shelf. So it's, if it's cans, you're stacking them better, you're bringing them to the front edge and then you're dusting all around it and you're making it so that all the labels are facing forward and it makes the aisle look clean and organized and full. And, uh, and so my father taught me how to condition those shelves, how to face those shelves. Uh, it was called both. And, um, and so he said to me, he said, I'm going to give you an hour to condition all of aisle one. I want all the cans facing the right direction. I want everything brought up to the edge. I want all the labels properly facing out and I want you to dust the shelves and, and he said, I'm going to give you an hour to do it. And I'm going to dock you an hour's pay if I can find more than 10 mistakes in that aisle after an hour. And I thought, no sweat. This sounds like an easy task. And so I started conditioning those shelves and, and pulling those cans forward and facing those labels forward. And I went down through the aisle doing that. And I, I started noticing it was taking me a lot longer than I anticipated but I thought, you know, I think I'm going to get this done. And making it even more complicated was the fact that the store was open and uh, the fact that people were shopping and actually taking things off those shelves and messing up some of my work after I had, had done it. And I thought, oh, boy. And I started getting nervous as I got to the end of the aisle because I thought, all right, my hour is almost up. And uh, some of the things I was working on an hour ago look like they've been disturbed. And so I went through the aisle again, tried to tried to uh, fix any errors that I had missed. And this was the first time I had done this. And I wasn't sure if I had done a good job. And then at the end of the hour, my father came down the aisle and he said, all right, it's time to count. And so he looked at the first part of the aisle and he said, all right, I see one error. And mind you, he said, you know, if I, if I find 10 things, I'm docking you an hour's pay. So it's basically like you did that, that hour's worth of work for nothing if I find 10 mistakes here. And so he found one mistake right away. And then he gets to another spot and he finds another mistake. And I can see that he's right. These are genuine areas that I missed where things aren't faced properly, where they're not brought to the edge of the shelf. And, and so he, he keeps going through and he finds another can that's not in the right spot and, and something that's not lining up with the label that's on the edge of the shelf. And, and he's finding all sorts of things. He gets to number four and then the fifth mistake and then the sixth mistake. And then he gets to the, the last third of the aisle and he's at, at number seven. And then he sees number eight and he's at number nine. And at that point, I thought to myself, all right, uh, you know, I, I realize I'm not getting paid for this hour. But he stopped at nine and he looked at it and he said, you know what? I found nine things. That's pretty good for a first try. And he said, so you didn't get to number 10. You didn't make 10 mistakes. You made nine, but you didn't make 10. So you still get paid. 
And what he was trying to do was teach me to do excellent work and to work with integrity. And so I get what he was trying to get at. I don't think it was ever his real intention to dock my pay as long as he saw that I was trying my best. But I know one of the things that I learned in working in that grocery store was the importance of working hard and having a work ethic. And that's a very good thing, but it can turn into a very unhealthy thing in our minds in one respect. I knew that in that in that moment that my father's favor was tied to the work that I did. And most relationships in this world are tied to the work that we do. And I think sometimes we go through life really wrestling with that in regard to our relationship with God, because we start to think that God will only value us when we're at work. And if I'm not doing something, I don't have any value. And if I'm not getting things completely right, I don't have any value. But it's interesting, when you look at what Scripture actually says, it's, it tells us, yeah, the Lord certainly does appreciate when we work with, with a good work ethic, and He certainly does appreciate when we are honest and have integrity in our efforts. But it also tells us that He desires that our hearts find rest. And He also models that for us by encouraging us to obtain rest through him. And so it's interesting when you become somebody who spends your life trying to work hard, it's hard to think that God would value you if you take a moment to pause from that and rest. But what scripture actually tells us is that one of the things that he's actually telling us in his word is that he values you in both contexts, whether you're working or whether you're resting. And that's one of the things that we should ultimately begin preaching to our own hearts, because that's exactly what God's word happens to tell us. Something else that he tells us in his word that I think is extremely helpful, and it's something that certainly comes up when I'm meeting with families and individuals for counseling, but it's something that I have to personally wrestle with as well, especially going through trials and issues. The issues that weigh you down today won't weigh you down forever. When you look at what scripture says, it, it frequently will talk about our trials in this world as being weighty things and heavy things and painful things, but it also speaks of them as momentary things. And in fact, they're, they're sometimes spoken of as light and momentary from the perspective of eternity, meaning the issues that weigh you down today aren't going to be things that weigh you down forever. So I believe that eternal life is obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. So since I believe I'm, I'm, I've obtained eternal life through him, I think of my life not just through the, the hundred possible years that I might live here on this earth, but I also like to think of it from an eternal perspective. And so one of the things that's been very helpful for me, and I hope it'll be helpful for somebody listening to this this call today or this podcast today. Uh, think about some of the things that are weighing you down right now. And if you, be, if you believe in eternal life, I want you to ask yourself the question, is this something that's going to weigh my heart down 10,000 years from now? And if it's not going to weigh your heart down 10,000 years from now, I don't know that we should necessarily give it the same weight that we tend to give it right now in the present. I think we can begin looking at our trials as real things, but also pausing for a moment to look at them from an eternal perspective. Now, there are things that I've experienced in my life that have been extremely painful. 
And I would suspect that most of us at this point in our life have experienced things that are extremely painful. But it's helpful, especially in moments like that, to be able to look at some of those things and recognize what God's actually saying to us in Scripture. He's saying, basically, the issues that weigh you down now, he doesn't minimize them, but he also lets us know there's hope beyond those moments. The issues that weigh you down today won't weigh you down forever. And that's one of the things in Scripture that that genuinely encourages me and genuinely helps me as I face a variety of things and a lot of challenges and some of the challenges that even come with my position of leadership and some of the trauma that you're forced to face with other people. I know one of the things that that just recently I, I uh, had to do, I, I, I shouldn't even say had to do, I chose to do this, but someone that uh, we care about deeply uh, a great friend of our family is dealing with a very severe medical issue, and it has her right now in ICU. And so the other day, I, I stopped over at ICU, and I saw the condition that she's in, and I know that it's limiting her mobility, and it's limiting her ability to speak. But I also know that when we prayed together, we prayed with hope, because we looked at these things, even these medical issues, because our perspective is eternal we were able to say, all right, this is a very serious and severe thing that you're dealing with right now. And it's not an issue that's going to weigh you down forever. It'll weigh you down in the moment if you let it, but it's not going to weigh you down forever. And that was a moment where we were able to just stay focused on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that isn't a hope that gets us caught in the midst of a momentary circumstance. And there's joy in that. So all throughout the course of our lives, we're going to be wrestling with a a variety of things that are messages that we're hearing from others and messages that we're preaching to ourselves. And again, the theme of the book and one of the things that I'm trying to make a practice in my own life in a very serious way, but also uh, I'm attempting to make this a practice in the communicating that I'm doing to my church and even in speaking moments like this. I just want to encourage people to begin thinking beyond the moment and begin talking to yourself like God talks to you, like like the Lord actually communicates in his word so that you repeat something to your heart that isn't something that's that's ultimately a diatribe of defeat, but really it's something that encourages your heart and helps you to see beyond the moment. And uh, at this point here, I'm going to turn things over to our hosts and uh, just see if there's any questions or uh, discussions that we can have uh, about this very subject. Hey, Sean, that was a great presentation on not only I've found you know a lot of value in what you were talking about in general but about the book and some of the lessons and some of the reasons behind it and uh, I have a number of things in the chat here that we're going to dive into in a moment but I thought this was fascinating Ben did a little research on the side here and he said in seven, uh, seven years ago the average messaging load to adults was two and a half or three thousand uh, items per day. And as of this year, they're estimating that it's doubled or tripled to six to 10,000 messages a day, you know, between emails and social media, direct messaging, et cetera. How do you, or what do you think that kind of continued ramping up uh, of the number of messages we're getting from those external sources is going to have on people? What, what impact do you see there? I notice one thing that uh, I find very curious um, 
with a lot of devices. So I just purchased a new computer and I just purchased a new phone, both within the same month. And both of them have the opportunity to turn messaging off in a very visible and noticeable way. And I think we're getting to a point where overload is something that's already being communicated to the tech companies that help us access all these messages. And they're starting to realize people are being overwhelmed with this and they need a break from it. And uh, we're even seeing that work its way into technology. So I think to answer your question, I think one of the things that, that we're really going to be wrestling with is the need to fast from some of the information that's coming at us. I was watching something just the other day. It was a, a vlog that uh, uh, someone that I follow on on YouTube had shared. And, uh, and they shared the fact that they just went to a major amusement park. And typically when you go to a major amusement park, you're, you're bringing your phone with you because you want to take, uh, you know, a whole bunch of pictures and video and things of that nature. And what he decided to do was to leave his phone home so that he could actually enjoy that time at the park without messages coming at him and requests coming at him and little odds and ends coming at him. And so I, I think we'll have to be, I think the way it's going to impact us is we're going to have to be very, very intentional to meter it. We're going to have to be very intentional to say, all right, here are times when I'm available and times when I'm not available. And I'll give you a very personal example. So I've, I've been serving in pastoral ministry for 25 years. And that means there are many people that on uh, you know, any, any given day are messaging me about something. And sometimes I feel like I am the recipient of all the world's bad news. So if there's something bad going on, I'm usually one of the first people that somebody will tell because they they're looking for prayer or they're looking for help or they're looking for counseling or they're looking for community. So I receive all sorts of bad news all the time. It's just the nature of, uh, you know, the, the calling that I've said yes to, but I'm I tend to be exhausted on certain days of the week. In, in particular, when I finish a Sunday, Sunday's a very busy day of ministry, I'm exhausted. And so I take Mondays off. And I've taken Mondays off for years and years and years. And I've made it so that I am very hard to reach on Mondays. And I've discovered that if I don't make myself difficult to reach on Mondays, if I don't meter the messages coming at me, it kind of ruins me for a good portion of the rest of the week because I don't give my mind rest. And I don't think I'm going to last in this role if I don't pause that, that messaging. And, uh, and I, th I think others probably can see that in, in their sphere of life as well. I think it's a very important message. I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think that ties back to what you were talking about earlier, which is respecting work, but respecting rest. I mean, it's right there in the Bible, you know, on the seventh day he rested, you know, so Hearing that message, I think, is really important. And I think, too, that a lot of times people almost are uh, thought of as uh, almost being like at a higher level if it's difficult to get a hold of someone or if there are times they're not available. But some of us fall into that more is more. And so I think it's really important, like you mentioned, especially thinking of it in terms of fasting. It's become much more common for people to talk about intermittent fasting and some of those things. It's not just in food. It can be taking a fast from social media or your phone. So I think that's a great message. Thank you for bringing that up. Certainly. Scene one, Apple, take one. Hi, I'm Shane Borza, your content creator coach. I have two books on filmmaking, Film Notes, where you learn to write, direct, and produce, and the Film Notes workbook, 
where you can learn checklists and paperwork to streamline creating your content. Available at shaneborza.com. I also have filmmaker resources like the paperwork bundle with over 300 documents, the sound effects bundle with almost 3,000 files, and the music bundle featuring 900 tracks of all genres. Want to build your professional credits? Become an associate producer and get listed on IMDb. Let me help you get your art out into the world. Scene one, Apple, take one. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Solve Network. These interviews are from our web series of the same name. Want to watch? Head over to YouTube and search for The Solve Network. If you have questions, you can reach out to me at shaneborza.com. On behalf of my co-founder, Benjamin Goss, we're glad you are a part of the network and hope you are finding solutions. If you need solutions, please reach out.